Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Mobilization for ABWE International, joined by my buddy Scott Dunford here in Fremont, California, rocking his Bucks hat. That's right. time. Enjoying that. <laughs> And where were you traveling to? We're in Ventura, California. I'm recording, you know, remotely here, uh, just a, f- a few a few uh, steps from the beach. So enjoying life right now. Yeah, guys, pray for Scott. Scott's really roughing it out there. Uh, but at the time that we're recording this episode as well, we're right with Easter in our rearview mirror. And um, Scott, tell me just a little bit about how Easter went at your church, because people that have been following the podcast have been praying for you and, and aware that you're involved in a church plant there. And obviously Easter Sunday's a big Sunday for you guys. What did that look like? Yeah, thanks for asking. It was an exciting Sunday. Um, Easter Sunday is exciting just because because Christ has risen for sure. Um, He's risen indeed. We spent a lot of time, you know, just engaging our neighbors and uh, it was just a super big encouragement. Um, a lot of our friends ended up coming out and people that we had invited. There's a Uzbeki lady and her husband from El Salvador that we've been getting to know. They came out. Uh, people wandered in from flyers that we had mailed from Pakistan, from China. Um, I mean, it was it was wow. a United Nations um, at our <laughs> church on Sunday. And here we have a little church of, you know, probably 35 people if everyone shows up at once, which they usually do. You know, and to have 15 or so extra people come in, many of them um, without a church home, some of them completely lost. Um, like for instance, the, the lady from Pakistan that walked in, she um, she came in clutching that flyer asking if she could come in. And she knew nothing about Easter, nothing about the cross, nothing about Christianity, mm. just very curious. And uh, yeah, those are the kind of things that, that happen out here. And we're really grateful for it. Really excited about what God's doing. So thanks for asking. And I'd love to have people continue to pray for us and join us. Uh, You know, as we're talking about local churches and, uh, you know, we're involved in our local churches, we have another churchman on the phone here. Uh, He's involved in the missions world, too, but he's primarily a churchman. We're talking to Chad Vegas today. Scott, tell us about Chad. So Chad comes to us uh, from the streets of Bakersfield. Uh, Let the listener understand. (laughs) Uh, Chad is the founding pastor of Sovereign Grace Church. And after completing his M.A. in theology at Talbot uh, and, and then becoming the senior high pastor at River Lakes Community Church, then went on to plant the church in Bakersfield and. And uh, he just has a passion to, to know Christ and make him known. He's been married to Teresa since 1994. They have two children. Welcome to the show, Chad. We're thankful to have you on. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself beyond just what your bio would say? And tell us about this ministry you've been involved with, uh, Radius International. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you said, I grew up in Bakersfield. I became a believer in really the early part of college. Um, got involved at that church, River Lakes, where I was originally an associate pastor. They had I was basically saved there, grew in my faith there, was called to pastoral ministry there while I was going to seminary. I didn't intend to go into pastoral ministry. I was just going to seminary because I wanted to learn more about the Bible and ended up in pastoral ministry. And after I served there for a while, uh, I then planted the church I pastor now. But that's partially tied to the story about Radius, which is the question you asked me. My wife and I had gone to a presentation by a man named Brad Buser. Brad Buser had just returned from Papua New Guinea. He was uh, serving among the Teddy people. This was in 1999. He had um, gone to this, what folks will call an unreached people group, this tribe who had no access to the gospel, um, linguistically distinct tribe, form- formerly cannibalistic. Just before he got there, the government had already shut them down on that. 
Um, but he came in there with his family and planted a church there. And then he lived there approximately and ministered there about 20 years, translated the New Testament and some other portions of scripture, et cetera. But he was just introducing the idea that there are people groups out there. There, there, are, there are folks who live in parts of the world who have no access to the gospel in their language whatsoever. They've never heard of Jesus. Um, not just most of the people in the group, but nobody in the group has never heard of Jesus. There are, there's nobody in their language to tell them about Christ and the gospel. And, and that was actually shocking to me at the time in 1999. I mean, I was in my mid-20s or so. And we began a relationship. Um, and as I became an associate pastor, really in student ministries, I was bringing Brad in to speak to the students. We continued to build that relationship. I mean, he continued to challenge me in my thinking about missions. And as he did, and we started to prepare students who wanted to go to these kinds of people groups, we recognized a lack of serious training that was happening among sending organizations. And I was concerned about that. And I had asked him, should I just go myself and go reach an unreached people group? And he said, hey, actually, you're doing a pretty good job of getting young people to go. So why don't you plant a church that focuses on that? And if, if people don't go, then go yourself. Right. <laughs> so I said, all right, we planted Sovereign Grace. And when Sovereign Grace maybe had 100 or so people in it, we actually started Radius International, which exists wow. to train um, young people to go and plant churches and, if you will, the hardest places, most unreached places on earth. And so we started that school for that purpose um, out of, to some degree, that church. Actually, Radius originally constituted in my home. Here in Bakersfield, we bought a campus down in Tijuana and started that ministry training uh, young people to go. Uh, we're not we're not a Bible college or a seminary. We don't replace those kinds of functions. We're specifically focused on linguistics, cross cultural church planting, high stress marriage, high stress parenting, closed country access, though how to how to suffer well. Those kinds of things is where most of our focus is. But we started Radius to that end. We work with a variety of sending agencies to send people out. And so that my, the church I planted, we got to participate in that. And then we've sent several ourselves. We have 10 missionaries right now. Well, two about to go in the field, eight in the field and 10 more applicants in our local church who want to go. Wow. That's amazing. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned, um, Brad, I, I believe Brad's wife is from Michigan and uh, she's from the area that I pastored in when I was first going into ministry. And I remember as a young, uh, guy right out of seminary sitting in a church gymnasium at a mission conference, sitting across the table from Brad, who's, if you haven't ever heard Brad speak, he's a very passionate, um, missions mobilizer. Um, it's a memorable experience when he, when he speaks on missions. And I remember him just with intensity talking to me and saying, Scott, you know, missions is about language. You got to learn a language and then you got to learn another language and you just keep learning languages until you die. Cause that's the heart of like reaching people groups is understanding their heart language. So when you're talking about Brad and linguistics and training, I can hear his voice in my head. So that is really cool. Oh yeah. Brad, he really challenged a lot of assumptions that I had personally. And I, I agree with you. He's not only did is his own life remarkable with the church that he planted, but but the number of people he's mobilized to go um, to the hardest places on earth is is remarkable as well. well. I want to shift gears a little bit, Chad. 
you've uh, written a little bit lately for uh, Founders Ministries and in other settings. And I believe you're uh, slated to speak um, at their conference as well on the topic of something that you're calling gospel privilege. So anyone who's been on social media lately probably knows that there's been a lot of discussion lately over the topic of privilege and what that means for a lot of the social justice controversy that's happening within the church. But explain to us what you mean by the term uh, gospel privilege. What is that? Kind of the genesis of that was that Tom Askell asked me to come out to Founders Study Center and teach a course on missions for them and then to preach in his church. And as I was wrestling with what to preach in his church, I knew that Tom had been sort of right in the middle of this discussion about the gospel and social justice. And I keep hearing these ter- this term white privilege thrown around, and it's thrown around in sort of a covetous way, right? I mean, in other words, some folks have privilege I don't have, and I would like to have it too. And so I, I noticed folks are struggling over this question of how do we have more equity uh, in outcome? How do we have more equity in outcome so that we all kind of get the same stuff? And I thought, you know, I'm out here talking about missions. I want to speak about missions, but I kind of want to be a little bit provocative in the sense that I think um, in the midst of talking about how we get more equal outcomes for people, for every, if you will, citizen in America, um, the church is missing a much more important discussion, which is this discussion of how much access we have to the gospel that is lacking in so many parts of the world. And I mean, my neighbor who is poor, I would love for them to have more stuff. But the fact is, I'm much more concerned about my neighbor who doesn't know Christ and who's going to hell, who has no access to the gospel. And so we, we really need to think more about that. And, and part of that was driven by what Paul says in Romans 1.14 when he says, I'm under obligation or I'm a debtor is maybe a better translation, both to Greeks and to barbarians. And I, I found that to be striking. Why is a Jewish man indebted to a Greek? I understand when he gets into Romans 15 and talks about the Gentile, if you will, debt that is owed to Jews in the sense that the gospel riches that are promised to them in the Old Testament have been extended to us. But, but why does a Jewish man owe a Greek anything or a barbarian, which we know when he sees barbarian, that's just an onomatopoeia. He's this is how they sound when they speak bar, 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 right? So he's talking about those in Northern Europe in, in some sense. Why, why does he owe them anything? Why is he indebted to them, both to the wise and to the foolish, he says, as a contrast? And it seems to be saying kind of the cultured and the uncultured, the, the, the educated and the uneducated, the, the wealthy and the poor, if you will. He's a debtor to them all. And I wanted to press into why. And part of that is because he's an apostle. The Lord has bound him to making the gospel known to the Gentiles. So that would be part of the reason. But I don't think that speaks to the fullness of the reason. I think the fullness of the reason that Paul's getting at is we share a common humanity. We're both descended from the same Adamic parents, if you will. We share a common fall and sin, because in Adam's fall, sin we all. Uh, we, we share a common condemnation. But what I have that they don't have is I have the gospel that saves me, and they don't have it. And so as a, as a fellow human being, I'm indebted to offer to them what I have that they don't. And so what I want to drive after is, are we really thinking 
clearly enough about the fact that my church, uh, the folks in my town have a multiplicity of opportunities to hear the good news, to be saved. But, but there are people in parts of the world, in language groups, if you will, who have no gospel witness. It's not just that they're rejecting the gospel witness they have. They don't have any gospel witness at all. And are we concerned enough about that? And I think while we're all clamoring around these issues of how to make life more equitable in what is probably the most equitable nation in the history of the world, uh, we're, we're talking about those issues and ignoring um, the, the bigger issue, which is the millions, if not billions of people who are condemned to hell with no no access to the gospel. I remember when we were wrestling with God's call in our life into missions, and um, that was uh, one of the things we really wrestled with was why have we been blessed so much? And, and when you see other parts of the world and you, you, you quickly realize the blessings, yeah, there's, there, there are material blessings for growing up in America, for sure. But, and, and that's what you go. That's what you see when you go on a missions trip. Right. You see like, wow, there's a huge disparity between what I have and what they have. But when you get deeper and you realize you start talking to, to pastors and in, in, in uh, developing world countries, you get into the Middle East, into these places that are considered unreached uh, people in places, you realize like the bigger privilege is growing up in a country in a place where I get to hear good gospel preaching, where I'm exposed to the gospel, where even if I don't have a gospel loving parents, even if you stay in a hotel overnight, you have a a good chance of opening a drawer and finding a Bible, you know, stumbling across, um, you know, preaching and access in in your own language. And and by and large, to go to church on a Sunday morning and not fear your church being blown up on you. So I, I, I wrestled with that when we felt God calling us into missions, that whole idea of like, why has God blessed us? And, you know, the conclusion that we kind of come to is that was that so his way may be known on earth and a saving power to the nations. There is that sense of, of debt of gratitude to Christ, or maybe that's not the right word, but that there is that sense that God has blessed us so that we could share that blessing with other people. And I feel like that's kind of what you're getting at. Is my, am I right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the intensity, if you will, of that Ratches up, ratches up when you look at the fact that there there are people groups who have zero access to the gospel. It's you know my neighbors might not know the gospel on my street, uh, and I run into folks here in Bakersfield who don't know the gospel. But if I take Charles Spurgeon's definition of a missionary, which is that you're you know every Christian's either a missionary or a fraud, which which I don't take. But even if I took that, there's approximately sixty thousand evangelical missionaries then in my city, <laughs> right? And so. If people aren't hearing the gospel, it's just because the local church is falling down and doing its job. But if we consider the fact that there are places where millions of people live and have no access to the gospel, there's there's no missionary there. Um, that that's a, that's a real concern that we ought to have as a church. Well, and even the place where I live in Fremont, I mean, it's very dark. Um, and uh, and you've I know you fought some of those battles against darkness, even in Bakersfield, just from reading your bio, but like, it's a dark place. And a lot of people don't know the gospel, but you can still, you can still proclaim the gospel freely. You can still send mailers talking about the gospel. You can still open up your church services. And so there's, there's that sense of gospel that we enjoy. And, and so the the next question I want to kind of get to with you is, so what is that balance? There's a sense of, 
of the gospel blessing or privilege, if we're going to use that word that, that we do enjoy. Like, I love it that I'm looking at a stack of commentaries and other Christian books in the Bible and a lectionary that I'm reading today, you know, that, that are a blessing to me. And I've accessed all those things in my language and I want to take advantage of it. So how do we balance the enjoyment of this blessing with the imperative to meet the physical and spiritual needs of those around us worldwide? How should we try to balance that? Or should we try to balance that? That's an interesting question. I've not, I've not thought about it from the angle of balancing it. I've just thought I rejoice in the wealth of materials I have that help me and, and teachers and resources I have that help me understand the gospel and the word and that, that my local church has access to. I thank God for that. And at the same time, I want to be sobered about the fact that there are people around the world who don't have that. I haven't really thought about it much as a balancing act. Balancing. Are you, are you concerned about, you know, should I feel guilty that I have access to all this or? Yeah, that's kind of the thought is because it comes up in the broader conversation about privilege. Should we feel guilty for the fact that we, we possess the gospel? Should we be driven to the nations out of guilt or are there, are there additional motives that, that should override that or undergird that? What other feelings should drive us out on mission? Paul's a debtor, but he's a joyful debtor, right? So how, how do you, you know, just even within the heart of a missionary? Yeah, I don't get the impression that Paul is driven, or if you will, his indebtedness is driven by guilt. I, I get the impression that his, his indebtedness is, is, driven, is driven by, uh, as I said earlier, one, the command of Christ, first and foremost, I think Christ told him to go. <laughs> but two just his incredible joy in in having Christ and knowing him and giving his life for him so that he counts his life you know as of no value to himself but only that he might finish the race i think i i really don't sense this if you will or get the sense that we need to feel guilty that god has given us abundance of riches in materials or resources i think we should thank god for that but we also need to understand that there's a stewardship that comes with what you're given. Paul never condemns wealthy people for being wealthy. First Timothy 6, when he says to the minister or to Timothy to instruct the wealthy, he doesn't say instruct them to feel guilty for being wealthy. He says instruct them to be, you know, to not trust in their wealth, to be generous and ready to share. And I think I, I look at it and say this, this wealth of resources we've been given ought to cause us to be generous and ready to share. We, it, it ought to cause generosity in us. So why is it, do you think, that we are much more likely to feel a sense of crippling guilt for our material privileges and blessings? And yet when it comes to the fact that we possess the gospel, whereas you know a third to two thirds of the world really doesn't possess access to the gospel, that that is so out of sight, out of mind for us. Yeah, I think there's there's probably several answers to that question. One of the answers would be general ignorance. Before I ran into Brad, I didn't even have a clue that there was this category of whole language groups who have zero gospel witness. I didn't even know that existed. And I was in seminary, right? So I had already taken the missions class and I still didn't know. You know, um, I think there's some ignorance that's to blame. I run into pastors all the time who are a bit shocked by that. So not just the lay people. So I think ignorance is one issue. I think another issue is I, I don't know that we really have a sense of the heaviness 
you know, with regard to the reality of condemnation for sin and hell. I really think American Christians, you know, we've moved cemeteries as far out of our view as we can. They're not in the churchyard like they once were. You know, you used to go to your church, and as you walk to the church, there's a cemetery right there, and you walk by all these dead people, and you walk into the church, and you're looking at the minister saying, what answer do you have for what I just walked by? And the minister would not have pulled out a fog machine and a light show in that instance, because that's not going to answer the question you have, right? It just makes it more so, spooky. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does, right? So now you, we've moved the cemeteries as far away from us as we can, so we don't have to see them. We walk into church and put on an entertaining show, and we all walk around pretending like death isn't coming for us. And there isn't a, a reality of what we have to deal with that there, you know, it's an appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And so I think when we don't think about that in our own lives and we begin to all slowly move in a direction where the gospel becomes a way to, if you will, kind of help the broken overcome their brokenness rather than save rebels from condemnation and hell, uh, this sort of soft therapeutic uh, gospel that we have out there now. Once we've made that turn, it's, it, you know, what are we talking about with unreached people groups? They're dying, going to hell. I'm not even thinking about that in my own life. I want to know how you can fix my marriage or my you know, children or my business. But I'm not thinking about the ultimate questions of life and death and, and judgment and heaven and hell. Those are just out of sight, out of mind. So why are they going to come up with regard to other peoples in the world? That's interesting. I, I remember hearing John Piper do a, he was doing a sermon on, on the life of John Owen and just talking about how many of his children, I think 12 out of 13 children died in childhood, something, something crazy. And he just said, you know, it was said of the Puritans, the smell of death was upon them just simply because they just lived around death and dying all the time. And I remember, or I remember seeing like a Renaissance painting of Jerome with a, a skull on his desk to remind him of his own mortality. And we hear stories of William Carey burying children in India or Adoniram Judson burying two wives in in Burma. You know, these stories of and, and, and I, I know even from the 1950s stories that I heard growing up in my church of, you know, missionaries that that buried children in Africa and they, this the sense that death isn't some faraway thing that we can just kind of put off, but it's it's there. It's any moment and um, we will face our judgment. Like there is something about American life, especially American life, that um, allows us um, to, to deceive ourselves by thinking death is is not an ever present reality until it hits us. Oh, I think that's right. I think we really struggle with believing that folks are really that bad and God will really condemn people to hell, <laughs> that they really need Jesus, the exclusivity of the gospel that he alone saves. I just think I think that's hard for us to really bite down on and accept the way we ought to. Do you think that's a deficient theology on our part about how we view God or is it a deficiency in how we view ourselves or is it a little bit of both? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't see God as holy as we should, and we don't see ourselves as sinful as we should. Well, and I think also at the same time that we see um, ourselves growing numb to the eternal realities that are at stake in the gospel, the controversy over social justice is reflective of the fact that we are all intensely focused on how do we engage those who are less fortunate around us, which those are good concerns. And the, the gospel does call us to engage in those areas. Absolutely. And the, the kingdom of God is not just this ethereal thing. 
Um, but at the same time, it, it is interesting that in our own hearts, uh, we can find ourselves more excited about politics, about meeting physical needs, about whatever it looks like, and increasingly numb and unaware of eternal things and unseen things and forget that our mission in the world primarily is making disciples. And certainly that affects all of life, the physical, the material, as well as the spiritual but that our job is to make disciples. And you think that's that's the ploy of the enemy, right? Is to keep us focused on seeing things instead of unseen things. Chad, as a, as a pastor, where do you see missions going as far as missions from North America? Do you see in your ministry more people waking up to the fact that we have a gospel that we owe to the world? Or do you see more focusing on, on other things that are less than what we've been called to? Yeah, you know, I... I'm not a sociologist of what's happening to evangelicalism at large in America. I, I do know in my own church uh, what we see. I don't, I don't know how unique it is. I, I suspect it might be somewhat unique, but we have a church that is very focused on our indebtedness to, to taking the gospel to the nations. Like I said, the church started 12 years ago. I guess we're coming up on 13 and within this next year, but we have seen we're, we're you know, we're going to be in the next few years up to about 20 people from our congregation raised up in our praise church. God. We're going to unreached people groups. We spend more uh, out of our people's pockets go to reaching unreached people groups than go to our our general budget. Our missions team or committee, if you will. I don't like the word committee because it just, you know, but our missions team got 40 to 50 people in it. So of our membership, maybe just under a quarter of our membership is on the missions team. It's, uh, we have our prayer meetings for our missionaries are generally packed out. Uh, we've even talked at times about having two services for prayer for our missionaries because of the packed out. So I, I think it's just, it's been a different experience for us at our church than probably is what, what's normal, but I have no idea how much that's happening other places. I just know what's happening with us. So what are some practical ways that you're doing then to bring your congregation face to face with the global needs so that they're not growing numb to the reality that we do owe the gospel to the world? I, I think one is that as a preacher of the gospel, I have to keep in mind a lot of things as I teach expositionally through books of the Bible. Uh, one of the things I want to keep in mind as I'm teaching expositionally, particularly through Paul's letters, is that that Paul was a missionary. He's not just a pastor and he's not just a theologian. So a book like Romans, I think one of the things that is often missing in teaching on the book of Romans, and I'm not saying it's not out there in commentaries, particularly in introductory material to some degree uh, of those commentaries, but it doesn't flavor the way you look at, for example, Paul's doctrine of salvation. We all get excited about the exalted soteriology in Paul from, you know, Romans 1.18 through Romans 11. And we think, wow, what an incredible exposition of the gospel this is. And it is. But we lose sight of the fact that it's smack dab in the middle of a missionary right. support letter. <laughs> Paul is yes. raising support as a missionary. And, and the loss of sight on that, I think, is a disservice to our churches. And I would say with the whole of the Bible, anything I'm teaching— from Genesis 1 through to Revelation 22, we have a Bible that tells us, you know, that brackets, if you will, a story of a God who's created the cosmos as a kind of temple in which he dwells with his creation. And he's created these image bearers to, to reflect his glory throughout that cosmic temple, if you will, and that we've sinned and that's been lost. And now there's this 
redemptive work on God's behalf, that he, that he comes to save us in this seed of the woman, the, the seed of Abraham, our Messiah, Jesus, to return us to what was lost in the beginning so that you get to Revelation and now you're back in that temple in the new heavens and new earth. I mean, the reason, there's a reason it's a cubed city overlaid with gold because that's what the Holy of Holies is. So that we now dwell with God forever, people from every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth. And if we don't put the Bible in that context, as we exposit it, I think people lose sight of what this is all about. That's that, and that's a part of it in expositional preaching. I think prayer in our congregational worship service every Sunday, we pray for every one of our missionaries by name and location. Um, we don't record that for the general population, obviously, for for a variety of reasons you guys would understand. So this is not out there on the World Wide Web for safety purposes, largely. But we pray for them by name and location. We regularly have our missionaries in front of our people at our congregational prayer meetings. We pray for our missionaries with quite a bit of specificity. Uh, we bring missionaries regularly before our folks so that they see that as normal. I think the children in our church now grow up in a context in which Becoming a missionary is 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 an is a normal option, not some kind of romanticized, extravagant, sort of exotic kind of idea. But it's just something some Christians do. Right? Um, it's it's not that shocking. So I think I think all of those things have contributed to that in our church. And and at the end of the day, more than anything else, it's just the Spirit of God has chosen to blow the way He has where He has, and we we're thankful for that. I think that's so important. And uh, I've probably like you, Alex, and I can commiserate in this. A lot of times churches will say, hey, you know, can you come in and preach a missions message? We need a missions emphasis. And I'm glad they do that. I'm really thankful. So if you've invited us to do that, don't hear me critiquing that. But but in the back of my mind, I'm often thinking every passage is a missions passage. Like and, and even even if there's not explicitly a call to the nations, like you see it throughout the Gospels, you see it in the prophets, you see it in in the law, as you talked about in Genesis, where God's mind is calling, you know, the nation's back to himself and uh, restoring, you know, what was lost in Eden. And um, that involves all the peoples of the world. And so I thank you for bringing that out. I, I think those are really practical suggestions that can be really helpful for any pastor or any small group leader or Sunday school teacher to think through how they keep missions in front of people. Yeah, well, and I would I want to encourage pastors to stop seeing missions as a program of their church. It's not like men's ministries or women's ministries or children's ministries. This is the mission of the church. This isn't a program we might get around to or we might fund or we might participate in. We're supposed to make the gospel known to our neighbors as a local church, those who are in our own location, and um, to the ends of the earth. I mean, that, that's that's our mission as a church. We, so we need to stop seeing it as a program. And yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm glad churches have a missions emphasis weekend or what have you, but they. I wish we would stop seeing it as just Hey, one weekend a year, we emphasize missions and start start understanding that from beginning to end, we want to make God's glory known across the earth. Well, and the unfortunate consequence of that is that missions keeps happening, but it happens in isolation of the local church and the expositing of scripture. So before we recorded, we were talking about the gap that exists between the language of missiology and, and missions people versus the language of theology people. And you have people in the missions world that that read certain texts of scripture certain ways and make certain assumptions. And 
which people who are involved in local church and involved in theology might not make those same assumptions and interpretations. But what do you see as being kind of that gap that exists between the training and the inputs that that missions people are receiving and uh, what they need to be receiving to, to understand God's word? Yeah, I think we've made a divorce between theology and methodology that is is really unhelpful, unfortunate, and frankly leads us to methodologies that that are based on theological assumptions that are false theological assumptions. And, and I think that's a major problem. So for some reason, there's this belief out there that methodologies are just neutral. And it's just not true because what we do in missions is built upon what we believe about who God is, who man is, what our problem is, what the solution to that problem is how the Holy Spirit works, what Christ has called us to do. And so we've kind of isolated this world of of biblical studies and theology from the world of missiology and to some degree, just even pastoral theology, right? Or what's happened, I think, what happens in the local church, that somehow we don't know how to articulate, this is what we believe about who God is, who we are, what the fall is, what salvation is, et cetera who Christ is, how the spirit works. We don't know how to articulate that in the day-to-day ministry of the church, nor in the day-to-day ministry of the missionary. And because of that, I think we end up with all sorts of error being propagated unintentionally, ignorantly, because of that kind of divide. And I don't say this to be rude at all, so I hope it's not taken this way. But I had the experience in seminary of realizing the guys who signed up for Christian ministry degrees or missiology degrees were the guys avoiding the hard courses like church history, historical theology, Greek, Hebrew, etc. And I thought, that's sad. These are the guys who are going to lead us in the mission of the church, and they're avoiding the languages and systematics and church history. So there's no articulation between those things. And so how can people hear more about the work of Radius and find out about that and be a part of what you're doing there and also follow you in your ministry? As far as Radius is concerned, radiusinternational.org is our website. We have a resources page there um, interacting with some stuff that's happening right now in contemporary missions, particularly I'm concerned about the disciple-making movement or church planning movement. So I was in a debate um, on that, which is hosted there. Uh, I wrote an article on disciple-making movements people might want to look at because these are major emphases right now in world missions among sending agencies, and I think they're very deeply problematic from a biblical perspective. So I've got, we've got a website there with some of those kinds of materials. We also every year have a thing called Radius Day. People are welcome to come out to our campuses in Tijuana and to learn about what we do at Radius, how we train uh, people. We now have a short-term thing in the summer for those who are college age, who want to come down to the campuses and serve, and then kind of get, if you will, a sort of mini training during that service on world missions, what the Bible has to say about that, how the task is accomplished. We're trying to build more of those resources for the church. We have a missiology conference that we host, which will be coming in June of 2020. We'll have a missiology conference in San Diego. And we're opening a campus in Taiwan as well, but that will be for the Mandarin Chinese speaking church. So most of your listeners won't be too interested in the resources they're putting out because we won't be able to read Except them. Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. So <laughs> that's great. I mean, we're, we're looking forward to that. But I think those are some resources you can get through Radius. So our conference, which we'll have next June, our website, radiusinternational.org, and then 
Radius Day. Those are great ways to get plugged in and learn more about what we're doing and training people to go to the hardest places on earth to, to reach those folks. Um, obviously, if, student, if people want to apply to be students, uh, we generally encourage you to have a, a bachelor's degree and a good, solid Bible background before you come to Radius. We don't generally provide those things. As far as my ministry, I, you know, I'm just, I'm a local church pastor. Our website's bakersfieldchurch.org. I, I think it probably needs to be updated dramatically. I think I might be on iTunes, but I would have to check to see if that's the case. <laughs> I don't, I don't pay a lot of attention to that. To that kind of a thing. That's good. You're not a self-promoter. That's good. <laughs> no, I mean, I enjoy just pastoring the people that the Lord has given to me, you know, to, to, to oversee. And I, I'm thankful just to be able to pastor them. I, I think there's probably some resources out there. I imagine the Founders Conference will be online uh, once it's done um, as some kind of video or audio. And I, I'm going to be preaching at the Banner of Truth East and West Coast Conferences. So I imagine that video will be up too. Well, sounds good. And thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you and the perspective you bring to these issues. Thanks for your time. Thank you, guys. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us.